This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. You're experiencing another multi-platform broadcast of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air. This is Tony Diaz, the Libre Traficante, and I am the author of The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital. If you are tuning in, you might be experiencing this first on Facebook or any other social media platform, including the Nuestra Palabra Facebook page. Or you might be watching the video version of this on fox26houston.com. Or perhaps you're listening to the audio version on one of our first platforms, KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston's community station. Or maybe you're tuning into the podcast. If you're listening to the podcast, please do share it. And when we mention a few dates, don't feel bad that you missed something. Feel glad that now you can tell others about the great new author who we're talking to today, and she's joining me. Her name is Alma Garcia, and her book is All That Rises. Alma, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. <laughs> and we're going to start off with a reading, and you're going to read an excerpt. And we're going to ask you to read a lot from the book, but I do want to let folks know that you will form part of the Latino bookstores at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center's Texas author series. I'm very proud to be the literary curator. You'll be joining us on the second Friday of November, Friday, November 10th, and you'll be reading from your book as well as signing copies, taking pictures with folks. Mm -hmm. You'll also be joining uh, Dr. Jesse Esparza on that same day. We hope folks will come in and support and get a chance to, to meet you. We look forward to having copies of your book in stock from now on forever. So if folks know someone that loves books, is in the San Antonio area, please tell them to come by and pick up a copy of, of Alma's book. But um, right now, you're going to share with us a reading. So uh, Alma, the microphone is yours, and we'll chat after the excerpt. Thank you. In this book, we have two main characters who essentially come from two very different walks of life. So I'm going to start with the uh, less expected one first. This uh, character, Huck Dupre, his wife has just left him. Um, and that sort of triggers the events that unfold in this book. Um, and that entangles him with another family, um, his na uh, neighbor's family, who will visit in a moment. On the day that he learns his wife has left him, he does not tell his children, his, his teenage twins and his nine-year-old daughter. Instead, he takes them to the amusement park as people do. And uh, there's an incident. He falls off the log ride. He's in the water. His life is flashing before his eyes. He's not conscious. And this is what we learn. The truth of the matter is that Rosemary had always confused order with oppression. It defied all natural law. She'd once been one of those creatures who make Texas college sororities possible. Dallas girls, extravagantly hairsprayed and manicured, who go to church on Sundays after Saturday night beer benders leaving the alarms of their sports cars to howl in the dormitory parking lots. Pre-wed is what you called a girl like that. 
not to mention seriously out of his league. This was the oil money lubricated playing field of Southern Methodist University after all, though as he passed her on the lawn of Northrop Hall, he couldn't resist the challenge he saw in the well-groomed arch of her eyebrow. She'd snorted at his introduction and asked whether he was planning an epic rafting trip down the Mississippi. He'd cackled with the pleasure of his surprise. Still, he didn't re reveal his real name, Harold, until he paid his first visit to the house that made him think plantation as he passed between its two white pillars. By that time, though, he'd removed his shoes in the foyer and received the stiff parental handshakes and the appraising glances of the two black women who served them a roast beef dinner followed by a bourbon pecan pie. Of course he was embarrassed by the way they all watched him handle the silverware, but he looked at his future in-laws in the eye, managing yes sir and yes ma'am. Yes sir, he had a scholarship. He had a game plan. Rosemarie grinned like a cat. That was back when she was still part of his team. Even in the blur of the twins' first months, all she had to do was meet his eyes in the dim light of the nursery as she nursed one baby and he bottle-fed the other, and he would be overcome by a terrifying sense of cheer, as though together they made up a task force forged expressly for the purpose of fighting desperation. They came to El Paso, the glory of NAFTA, paving his way at last toward the stock portfolio of his dreams, then Jordan, 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 accidental Jordan from who from her first moment had been a force with which none of them was prepared to reckon. The morning she was born, he'd taken the long way home from the hospital on the frontage road beside the river and pulled over. He'd been lightheaded as he shuffled from his vehicle to the chain link fence, uncertain of what he was looking for. A wide, dusty incline of creosote pimpled rock rose up at his back to where the railroad tracks lay. Above that, the freeway rumbling with early traffic and the university looming at mountainside, its red roofs like square hats. Before him, the river was free of the concrete bed that bound it for much of the length of the city, and it was running muddy and low. He released an unsteady breath. Eight years out on the open highway of parenthood, only to find himself now back on the doorstep of that soul-fracturing, gutted sleep. The mountains of diapers and snot wipers, the long, long tantrum-filled march toward kindergarten, already itemized with expenses and delays for the next 18 to 20, 25 years. His new child had smelled of blood as she squalled in his arms and had felt like a very ripe peach. It was then that he noticed a man in the distance. A boy, actually. He stood almost opposite Huck on the Mexican side at River's Edge. No barbed wire on his side, of course, pitching stones into the murk. Behind him, a low graffiti-slicked cinder block wall held back the familiar clumped shacks, which seemed to be trying but not quite managing to arrange themselves in straight lines. Huck watched the boy leaning, his arms slicing the air again and again, the explosive splash of each rock. He watched until the boy lowered his arm and looked up. The boy raised his hand to wave. Huck raised his hand in return, a swift current of optimism rising within him before the sun flashed against a tin roof and everything was lost in the glare. If only he could have gotten Rosemarie's attention the same way. Fantastic. We are joined by Alma Garcia, who just read an excerpt from her novel, All That Rises. She will form part of the Texas Author Series at the Latino Bookstore at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center in San Antonio on the second Friday of November, which is November 10th. 
And we'll get to hang out at the Texas Book Festival. You're, you're going to be part of our band book author reading. And also you'll be doing your own panel there uh, at the Capitol November 11th. So congratulations for all that. People get to hang out with you. And this is the beginning of your tour. You'll tell us some of the other stops in a little bit. want to tell folks that you're a writer whose award-winning short fiction has appeared in Narrative Magazine and most recently in Phoebe and the anthology Puro Chicanx Writers of the 21st Century. She's a past recipient of a fellowship from the Rana Jaffe Foundation, originally from El Paso and later from Albuquerque. She now lives in Seattle where she teaches fiction writing at the Hugo House and is a manuscript consultant. This is her debut novel. And it really is funny. You really read well, which is a gift, because you also you. write so well. <laughs> Those don't always go together. Uh, you. <laughs> um, and you're funny. So tell us where the, the sense of humor comes from. And is that something that unearthed and you went with, the, with, with that? Or was it something that you wanted to, to bring out? You know, I think the humor is just part of the DNA of my worldview <laughs> that is expressed in my writing. Um, I'm, I, I know when in, I inherited it from my father. Um, and I think a lot of it um, comes from, you know, there, there's, there is a lot of humor in this novel, but there's, there's a lot of pain and difficult pasts that are unearthed um, in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a way that people cope sometimes that by seeing not only what has been awful but by seeing the absurdity of what is awful mm -hmm. and turning that into just the part of the fabric of your life um just seeing it from a new angle <laughs> well and, and you do it with uh, the concrete details but also some of the fun details and language and also just the, the these moments so here's someone that's in this crisis moment and he's in a music park and he's about to drown from the log ride. So that's just wonderfully ridiculous, but also dangerous and poignant. Um, how did that come to you? That, you know, strangely enough, the beginning, you know, this is from the opening chapter of the book and there's so much, there's so much history and so many years that went into the writing of it. Um, and it did have its origin in a short story that was that I wrote at least 20 years ago. Um, but it wasn't this character who leads off the novel. The, I had this, um, it was one of those magical inspiration moments where I just had this image of this character um, falling into the water. And I needed to know what that was about. I knew that the mm. river was going to, you know, Rio Grande was going to be very strong presence in this novel because it divides everything. It joins everything. And I'm like, what does this mean? Why am I seeing this character fall into some kind of some body of water? And I just followed it down that rabbit hole. <laughs> That's fantastic because a lot of our listeners are writers and it's, it's good for them to hear different ways to explore a narrative or follow their visions and, and render it slowly, but surely you mentioned the amount of time it took you to write this. Uh, so you wrote, you wrote a short story that was a catalyst long ago. Um, and did you always want to write this novel or does it all sort of something happened three years ago, two years ago, and it does it come together that way or. Oh my goodness. It's well, it's quite a, in, in many ways, it's quite a story. Um, you know, I, I, 
the story that precipitated this novel, but that I had no idea would do so, I was my first published story that I, I published in like 2000. And it was actually a minor, a, a character that, well, that I wanted to spin a world around. I, I thought, um, you know, at the time I was like, oh my gosh, this, this might be my only chance. I don't want this character to die. <laughs> he needs a world around <laughs> him. And so, you know, very slowly over time, I began to build this world. And what happened is that he became a minor character or just one among many. This was a, originally a collection of, of linked short stories. And on the strength of, of several several of these stories um, being published and winning awards, um, I, I got an agent and he said, well, you've got your book, you've got a book, right? I've got a book, yes, I gave it to him. And um, when he came back to me in a little, little while, he said, you know, this book really needs to be a novel, <laughs> which was a, a, after about seven years of work. Um, but he, he was right, he was absolutely right. And I started over. And that was a very challenging thing to do. But, but let's pause there. Uh, and yeah. I think we should mention your your agent, Stuart Bernstein, who's one of the yes. leading agents in the country. Great person. And mm -hmm. I should point out to folks listening that you, uh, nowadays it's rare for editors to have the time or energy to cultivate a voice or the work that, that, they, um, that they're going to put through the publishing house because they're just not that big anymore, have that time energy. So it's right. wonderful for Stuart to, 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 to do that. Um, yeah. But you've got, you've got tenacity and resilience because let's, let's just pause here. <laughs> so you worked on a book for seven years and now you're going to start over. Tell us about how big a leap that was, the guts it took, and what were you thinking? Well, you know, it, it was the consensus, you know, Stuart had shared it with some trusted associates and it really was the consensus that these linked stories that I had were trying to be more than what they were. They were too connected to be linked stories, but not yet rising to the occasion of being a novel. And my gut instinct checked out on that. I mean, it's, it's always mm -hmm. hard to hear that, that all of this work has been not toward an end point. But, you know, I also believe that no writing is wasted. Um, and it only makes the next thing you write better. Um, that's not to say that it was easy or that it was fast. It took a long time to fig to get my bearings again. It's not just a matter of like, oh, well, I'll just write some connective tissue between these stories. Right. No, you have to you have to completely reimagine the arc of the story. And in a short story collection, I had 13 viewpoint characters. You, that doesn't work so well for a novel. I ended up with, <laughs> I ended up with two um, and a lot, a lot of um, lesser, you know, not, uh, not primary viewpoint characters who are part of this larger, it's almost, it's kind of symphonic in nature because it's a very large scope novel. Mm -hmm. um, and that just took the only way around it to figure out what I needed to do with it was, was through it, <laughs> was mm -hmm. by doing it until I started to see something emerge. And, and mm -hmm. meanwhile, life happens, right? I right. moved from the Southwest to the North, to the Northwest. Um, I became a mother. I had, you know, any number of things that life events that will slow mm -hmm. you down did. And uh, finally, after many years, I, ha I had a book, but even then it wasn't done. You know, I, it went out on submission, not just once, but twice. 
Um, it was a completely different book the second time it went out. Wow. Um, and we were very close to giving up on it <laughs> by the time it reached um, the desk of uh, uh, Rigoberto Gonzalez at um, University of Arizona, yeah. who saw it for what it was. And mm. I am so grateful because by the time it reached him, we did, you know, the, the amount of work that had to be done on it was, was minimal really. Mm. And um, that was what the many years of work was, was good for, you know, I was busy mm. with other writing projects at the same time when, when, when I didn't know what to do with it anymore. And when I needed a break from it, but um yeah, I, I had a hard time letting go of it. <laughs> and I was glad in the end that I didn't. makes sense that there were all these universes that were strong on their own being brought together and you having the courage as a writer uh to say you know what i want i want this to be better 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 and uh, of course we love rigoberto uh, he's done so much for for gente and for writing in general so for him to recognize it make makes it so clear so we're so happy that we can uh be joining you as you launch this i tell you what i want to remind folks we are uh, celebrating the new book by Alma Garcia, All That Rises, and reminding folks that if you missed her reading on November 10th at the Latino Bookstore, you can go there and get signed copies. Uh, or maybe you saw her at the, at the Texas Book Festival on November 11th, 2023. Um, and if you did and you want people to direct their way to her work, send them to the Latino Bookstore. I would love for you to uh, read another excerpt for us. And I want people now that now that you've shared with them the amount of work and, and your approach that you've put into this, I really want them to really appreciate um, just the language and, and, and the narrative. Uh, so Alma, would you be kind enough to read another excerpt for us? Sure. Um, let me give you a little context. Um, so our, our next main character I'll introduce you to um, is, is Huck's neighbor, um, they're acquainted with each other, but um, they don't know yet how they're going to become entangled with one another. Um, uh, this character, Jerry Gonzalez, is having what is would seem to be a fairly ordinary disruption in his ordinary life, but it's going to prove to be not so ordinary in the end. And it's going to bring uh, the two families together in unexpected ways. Um, I should also mention um, he's a history professor. Um, but hasn't always been. Um, we'll learn a little bit more about him as we go on. Uh, he has definitely come from humble origins. And so the moment he finds himself faced with is kind of confounding to him. In the bronze light of late afternoon, as Jerry Gonzalez stands at the French doors overlooking his deck, Chavela gives her orders. The coffee table, she says. Make sure you use two tablespoons of wax, just two, only two, top to bottom, never in circles. It's an antique. See, si, senora, is the response. Jerry glides to the landing at the top of the stairs and peeks over. The heavy-set woman whom Chavela addresses stands with her back to him in the kitchen, her black bun drooping, the waistband of her pants bunching beneath her t-shirt. She shifts between feet in breadloaf-sized athletic shoes. 
Chabela with her pixie cut, her pink blouse, her pantsuit, the color of ashes. También las ventanas, por favor, she adds, tapping the bottle of Windex on the kitchen island. The woman nods, for she is the maid. The maid. There's no way in hell he's addressing this woman as tú. Dad calls a voice behind him. Can I take one of the cars? Adam, their son, pokes his head from his bedroom. Black attire as ever, orange stripes in his hair, eyebrow with ring inserted without permission, and which he is required to remove in the presence of his grandmother. Where? Adam shrugs. He has developed a theory that matriculated seniors shouldn't have to explain everything. He is focused mostly on packing things into duct tape boxes in anticipation of the day his parents will drive the 700 miles to San Diego to deposit him at a dormitory's doorstep. God forbid he should attend El Paso's serviceable university where it so happens his father recently achieved tenure. But Adam desires new experiences and opportunities. He wants to see more of the world. Of course, Jerry has encouraged this curiosity. Of course, both he and Chavela want only what's best for him. Although, if this were completely true, Chavela wouldn't have spent the past two weekends angrily cleaning out the garage. Take the Volvo, Jerry says now. Return by midnight. Adam grins. Thanks, viejo. He disappears. Jerry returns to his desk, his embossed tomes. Popé's dream, a new view of the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. Sons of Oñate, modern colonialism in the American Southwest. From downstairs comes a surprised female gasp, followed by the yapping of a small dog. He oozes back out of the room. Chavela's Pomeranian dances on its hind legs. Chavela stoops down and tickles him under the chin. She extracts a dog biscuit. Her voice rises an octave. Who's my good boy? Are you my good boy? Yes, you are. And the biscuit is snapped up in midair. She looks up from the floor. Te gustan los perros? The maid is practically standing with one foot on top of the other. Si, sí, senora. Adam breezes into the room, car keys jingling. Hi, sweetheart, Chavela says, rising. Say hello to Lourdes. What's up, Lourdes? Chavela gives him a narrow look. Hola, he says, then to his mother. What's for dinner? Chicken. Chavela shakes her head as Adam snatches a Coke from the refrigerator and slips out. Y tú? She glances over her shoulder. Tienes hijos? Lourdes nods. The coffee table, Chavela says, top to bottom, not in circles, never. It's streaks. It's an antique. And by the way, there's a sandwich in the refrigerator for you. Muy bien, señora. Gracias. Chavela makes her gathering sounds, paper, keys, sunglasses. <clears throat> Señor Gonzalez is upstairs, she says. He'll be home for the summer, researching, writing. In any case, he knows you're here. She pauses as though to let this information sink in. And I myself will be back in a few hours. Goodbye. Jerry cracks open Sons of Oñate. Waps it shut. He descends through a rising aroma of pine saw into the kitchen where he comes upon the maid herself, a dowdy vision in rubber gloves and 70s era's headphones, from which are emanating the sounds of a soccer game at tremendous volume. She stands at the sink with her back to him, filling a bucket with hot water. Welcome back, booms the announcer, to the mid-season game of the Primera División, and it's shaping up to be the biggest game yet of 2005. Chivas have the ball. He watches coolly as she moves the bucket to the floor and scrubs the sink. Foul on Bautista. Monarcas get the penalty kick. Chivas take possession at midfield. Medina passes to Avila. Avila to Aguayo. No. Chivas recaptured. And Vermeulen, the Belgian, takes the ball. He's closing in. He shoots. See, see, see. She chants at the ceiling. Goal! Pedeposte. She hisses through her teeth. Yeah. Buenas tardes, he calls out. She startles and whirls around to face him. Ay, perdón. She shuts off her headphones and removes them, blushing. Buenas tardes, señor. He forces a smile. Usted se llama Lourdes, no? 
her dark complexion models as she nods at the window over the sink. Does he think? Does she think he's making fun of her by speaking to her as an equal? He has no idea. He removes a casserole dish of macaroni and cheese from the refrigerator and inserts it into the microwave, then snatches up the remote from the kitchen island. The TV squawks to life in the den. The news is nattering on again about the fence. Every bit of disconnected chain link and barbed wire along the border converted into a 700-mile wall of concrete and steel. Brownsville to San Diego, in theory. Also, the war in Iraq. Some new mid-occupation iteration of the United States invading somebody, bombing somebody, installing somebody, evading somebody. He zaps the TV off. Remind me of how often we'll be seeing you, Lourdes? Twice a month, senor. The microwave beeps. She mops. Well, he says. He locates a Diet Coke and fills a glass with ice. Have fun. And we are enjoying the fiction of Alma Garcia. Her book is All That Rises, and she is an author who could read her own audiobook. So when you do the audiobook, no one else should do it but you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> of course, I, I want to talk about the prose, but I got to talk about your reading. How do you do this? <laughs> You know, it, what's funny is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away in Texas, as a matter of fact, I spent one single year as a drama major. Um, this was not my calling. In claro the end. Que si, of it course. was so I could read my own work. <laughs> no, fantastic. I, I do love how you are playing with the nuances and the characters and the inflections. So, uh, I, I, I encourage folks to see you read this in person. I can't wait till you're reading this at the at the Latino bookstore. Uh, we're going to send clips out of this just to get people uh, bonkers. It's a little chow. It's not a reading. It's a little chow. So, <laughs> que bueno, que bueno. Um, but, and again, in that excerpt too, you're doing a lot with all the different levels of society that, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because you play with, what is a Latino book? I mean, you got your last name, but the title isn't necessarily Latino. The topics aren't necessarily Latino, yet they are. Uh, and you're playing with all these different levels of society. Um, was that kind of your intent or that's the way it happened? Um, well, I mean, I think it was my intent insofar as, um, you know, sometimes I get I've gotten asked, you know, I've lived here in the Pacific Northwest for about 20 years now, which is about as different as you can get from the Southwest. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've shared pieces of this work over the years. And mostly my, my sense was that people were confused about like, why are you writing about El Paso? <laughs> and where is El Paso? <laughs> and what? Why? <laughs> so, um, you know, especially early on 20 years ago, um, there people really didn't even know where it was or what mm. significance it might have. Mm -hmm. Maybe they knew it was on the border, but not, not much else. But mm. then the news happened and the world happened and history started unfolding. Mm -hmm. And so now everybody knows where El Paso is. Um, but there, what I hope is that people will have an understanding of why 
it's important everywhere <laughs> in the country. Why mm -hmm. what happens on the border affects everywhere else. And, you know, I really, as, as I've been to kind of ask myself, you know, why, why am I doing this? I think it really started because I felt like I wanted to write stories about people who grew up in the kind of world that I did, who had their feet in more than one culture, as mm -hmm. you do in this part of the world, no matter what your background, there's some kind of crossover um, mm -hmm. going on. And yet I wasn't seeing these kind of people in books. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I just wrote what I wanted to see, wrote what I felt like I could inhabit in a way that I hadn't seen done before. And I'm hoping that now is the moment where it starts to dovetail with people mm -hmm. understanding, you know, and it's anyone who's even outside of the Southwest can understand like, oh, this might be relevant to me. And maybe I'll learn something about this part of the world or about the cultures mm -hmm. that live here and how they interact and how, what the many um, issues are that they face. <laughs> Just describing all that um, overlap, like, yeah, I, I love Seattle. It's super chill, but you're right. Very different than, than Texas um, in, in so many different ways. Yet, you know, here, here we are, two Chica next people that can cross any, well, we can cross any borders we want, um, you know, with the facility of language and intelligence. I'm talking about you more than me, but, but uh, you know, we can flow, we can fit in, we can reject to fit in. Um, so I kind of feel your, your, your book is, 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 um, fueled by that, but also maybe because you've shared the, um, the amount of time you've written, you can lean into that sort of complexity because you brought so many different universes together at once. Um, cause that, that, that to me seems very hard to write, but once I'm in it, it's very delightful. Um, you think that may have helped the complexity of it or, or maybe just taking so much time to put the care and craft into it? I think it's just a combination of lived experience of being so fully immersed in all the worlds that mm. <laughs> converge and that in that part of the country, in my life, in my particular families, um, and just the practice of writing of and especially working on one particular project for a very long time but not but not neglecting doing other mm. other work other pe shorter pieces of creative work so that I could keep my my skills sharp mm -hmm. um but yeah you 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 have to be immersed to some level in what you're writing about um and whether it's your lived experience or whether it's something you're you're going to go into you're going to study so deep and you're going to connect with so many other people that are that understand it in such a way that you can create this airtight believable world you know one mm -hmm. one or the other has to happen it doesn't completely come out of our imaginations although that is absolutely where it ferments <laughs> well and i mean to the to the veracity of our similitude part of it i mean even you used earlier the totally texas word because i grew up in chicago and when I got here and they kept saying the frontage road, 
I'm like, how many roads are named frontage in the state? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? Uh, but it's such a Texas thing uh, that it adds to that sort of, um, you know, Texas vernacular, you know, Texas real. Uh, but even some of the um, the characters, you know, the way they act, um, you know, you, you've got this juxtaposition of lifestyles, but very, very, uh, very real. You know, the, the, the El Paso Profesor, uh, down to the specific rules for cleaning the the furniture. Um, I like what you're saying. It's those sort of real life um, examples, details that that can drag people in, and then you blow their mind with with the other cool stuff. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, the I guess what was the challenge though? In for example here. What you just read seems so tight. There's going to be some further plot developments. Uh, can you give us some unfair access into some of the specific lines you connected over over the years? Because I can't. That wasn't happening from the beginning of the book, was it? Like when you first started, you're like, "This is going to happen." You, no, I did. I did not know. Um, as I said, the, the the short story that precipitated this all, that character ended up um, being a minor character in this book, but he does have an important role to play. Um, and it was really, you know, as I was sifting through these stories and realizing I was going to have to promote some characters, I was going to have to demote some, I, I had to kill some off. I had to kill some <laughs> of my babies. Yeah, That's tough. <laughs> it, it, it is tough, but you know what? It was, it was better for it. And especially in a very long book, you know, you have to create some sense of focus. And um, yeah, believe me, it is very difficult to blend 13 different storylines into some larger arc that makes sense. And you have to peel away and peel away and peel mm. away. And finally, I, you know, I kind of understood that, you know, so much is there, there are there are several women who are key, women and girls who are key that keep um, that make the through line of the story. You know, um, Huck's wife who leaves um, her uh, story ends up being at the center of everything. Really, the arrival of Jerry's long lost and very difficult sister, Ines, um, who arrives just about as uh, Rosemary Dupre leaves. Um, also the center of that family's universe um, mm -hmm. and this sort of vortex builds around the two of them um, that, um, well, you'll have to read to find out. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. And I tell you what, I'd love you to, to get in one more, one more reading. And, and when we get, when we get to the other side of that, I'd love for you to maybe share some insights in the evolution of that piece because I appreciate you being so open about the amount of time and energy and work it took so that our listeners can understand that, like you say, you can fall in love with your characters, but the real goal is to get the most badass book possible. us to another excerpt from her novel all that rises is alma garcia alma the mic is yours 
All right. Well, perhaps it would be interesting to learn just a little bit more about Jerry and why this situation is particularly complicated for him. Um, we, uh, when his historiness comes to stay with him for a while, longer than anyone planned, um, he's trying to get to the bottom of what she's doing there. Um, and what he sets into motion is that he discovers, he starts uncovering things about his own past that maybe he would have liked to have, that he would have preferred remained buried. Um, so let, let's, I'll share a little bit more about, um, about him. And here's the part where I get to caution the listeners that there is some, uh, there's some, cu some cursing <laughs> in English and Spanish. So um, cover your ears. I'm sorry if you're, if that's um, difficult for you, but I'm here to keep it real. <laughs> Jerry stoops before the unmade bed, a panic thrilling in his blood. Beneath the bed lies a cardboard box whose markings, in addition to featuring the letters DQ inside of a red eye-shaped logo, indicate it once contained 150 hamburger buns. It holds photos now, dozens of them. He scoops a tattered black and white print from the depths and beholds Ines in some long ago era in which girls did not wear pants dressed as Zorro. What if he had been the elder, he asks himself now, the one who administered the head slappings and Indian burns, who commanded performances of scripted pay-per-view puppet shows and unfavorably critiqued his siblings' rhyming poems about cats and otherwise shaped her impressionable mind. Quien sabe? She was number five, he was number seven, and since their parents saw no reason to stop until they got to ten, they were stuck in the middle together or destined either to sink into anonymity or else do everything in their power to distinguish themselves. The date on the back of the photo indicates it was not even close to Halloween. Also, as a five-year-old, she'd won a local talent competition by singing Old Man River at the top of her lungs while wearing a platinum Monroe-style wig. He lifts the yellowed news clippings from the box. Here, too, is news of the elementary school state spelling bee championships. A story from the late 50s headlined, Girl Wins Sci Science Fair Prize with Moon Travel Hypothesis. The sparkling high school era reviews of her starring roles in adult productions of The Sound of Music, West Side Story, Macbeth, the singing and acting lessons paid for with an after-school laundromat attendant job. All the while, as evidenced by the slim 60s era biography he extracts from between the newsprint, she'd been developing an almost unhealthy interest in Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, the greatest intellect of the 16th century, as she used to say, and a friggin' nun! Of course, no one was surprised when she became the first in the family to attend college on full scholarship, albeit after a long stint working concessions full-time at the city zoo. When he himself had graduated from high school, the first thing he did was join the Border Patrol. It was the most respectable job he could think of that required no further education, and in those days they still took anyone whose draft number hadn't come up and who wasn't blind or crippled, as they put it back then, or flat-footed. It wasn't bad. It beat being in Vietnam, and he still got to wear a uniform and carry a gun. He stood around at the border, checking IDs and liberating baggies of marijuana from glove compartments, giving chase occasionally to the hardy souls who surfaced damply on the American side of the Rio Grande following the 500-meter crawl stroke. His colleagues waited beneath the Stanton Street Friendship Bridge, catching five or six of the hundreds who came galloping through their morning commute. You could apparently set your watch to it. Those days seem so impossibly distant now, what with all the agents lining up every couple hundred yards or so now in their SUVs so that your average border crosser looking at the massive board lines 
of uniforms arrayed the whole length of the city, either gives up and goes home, or if they have a job to report to on the other side, merely procures the basic ID that allows them to cross the bridge in a more conventional fashion, but in no manner actually permits them to work. The people from parts farther south had yet to start paying someone their life savings to seal them into the produce crate in the cargo hold of a semi or to push out farther west on foot on a death march into the desert. These were the days before an agent could get his ass shot off out in the field by heroin smugglers or the Mexican army or both of them working in cahoots. It was serious work, respectable work, and yet the moment finally came as he sat in the station's lunchroom one particularly torpid day, engrossed in a biography of Pancho Villa someone had left in the men's room, when it occurred to him that he was bored with his life and he hadn't a clue what to do about it. College, said his friend Chui, a third year he was on the GI Bill. I absolutely guarantee you will attract better quality chicks. The suggestion gave him pause. On the one hand, college was the province of Ines, Ines the great brain, the showstopper, the one in whose shadow he had lived so completely throughout his childhood that he had never seen reason to cast much one of his much of one of his own. When not involved in university theatrical production, she was by now so heavy into philosophy and religious studies that it would have been easier for him to make an appointment with Joan of Arc. Chewy, conversely, had flunked the library aid elective in high school and still liked to crush beer cans under his armpit. If he, of all people, could transform into a studious being with long-term employment prospects in sports medicine and with quality chicks besides, then couldn't he, Heronimo, invent himself? It wouldn't be long before he started referring to himself as Jerry. Naturally, this moment of his life coincided with what he had come to think of as Ines's first notorious incident. Not this, that this event had surprised him in any way. After all, the guy in the diner booth beside hers apparently had quipped to his companion, what's with all the Mexicans in this place? I thought they were supposed to be in the kitchen. Then he'd laughed, and Ines had risen up from the table beside his where she had been enjoying breakfast with friends and turning with the bearing of someone balancing a large plate on her head, seated herself across from the perpetrator. I guess you're not from around here, she began. Gabron? The response, Jerry was told, had not been favorable. And yet who else but Ines would have swept his plates from the table? Who else would have threatened him with a butter knife, continuing her harassment until both she and her nemesis had to be physically restrained by their companions until the authorities were called, until she was the one who was marched out of the joint by an amused pair of Anglo police officers while the other guy made lewd gestures through the window. Do you know what he said? She snarled as she twisted in their indifferent grip. Of course, he was the one she had called afterward. Hermana, he told her, as she drank a bottled Fanta on his sofa with a shaking hand. Tranquilo, forget that pendejo, you're going to burn up all your fuel. It was weeks, months even, before she was the same again, as though she were dipping into the supply of rage that had fueled her earlier era. But that was another matter altogether. Fantastic. We are being treated to an excerpt from All That Rises, the new novel by Alma Garcia. We will have to look up the Federal Communications Committee rules to see how much of that will have to bleep from our FM broadcast. But on the podcast, it's all up for grabs. So that <laughs> Yes, I did have a chat about that ahead of time with, <laughs> with the staff. 
Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. And our legal team is on it too. <laughs> the dump button will be employed. But, uh, <laughs> but that's so, but, but again, another great uh, example of, of your writing style. Um, I did ask you to, to treat us to, to maybe some of the harder decisions you had to make in making this really tight, compressed piece come together like this in the course of all the years it took you to edit this. Can you, can you treat us to some of the behind the scenes stuff? Sure. You know, I think although it was clear that these two protagonists were going to have to be the ones who drove the story, originally there was a third and she still has her role in the novel. It was Lourdes, the maid. Mm. And, you know, she I, I actually published a short story from her point of view quite a long time ago. Um, that was one of the one of the pieces of this of this puzzle of, of the novel. Um, but and I, especially because I, you know, I wanted a, a female voice to be prominent mm. in the story as well. And it seemed it felt it was like, how did I end up writing this story about two men? I don't I, you know, <laughs> how did I get here? Um, but it became clear that even though she was at the same um, storytelling level that they were that her through line was interfering with a clear sense of what the overall story was about. And so I hate to use this term. I kind of had to demote her, but it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really a demotion. Um, sometimes you have to rely on the part of the iceberg that stays beneath the water. You have to know mm. so much about your character that when you show that little tip of the iceberg, your reader can feel the weight of what's beneath the water. And so I had to submerge a lot of her story, but what was left over, I felt, was was more powerful. And her mm. role is still important in this book, very important. Um, and she is kind of what brings these two families together. Um, there are many things that bring them together, but she's the first um, big complicating factor. And um, I think that that was just, that was what had to ha happen. And it, it sort of mimics the role that someone like that might find themselves in life. They're not, you know, I, I, I wanted to center someone like that, but she's actually an observer. She's, mm. she's got a lot to think about. She knows more than other people know because she, people don't even know that she's listening and mm. she is. And that's her, that's the one power that she has is that she hears everything, sees everything um, understands a lot more than people think she does. And so she's still, wow. she's still there, but, uh, she's, she's at a, she's operating on a different frequency. Well, and you're also revealing to us why you are a manuscript consultant, because those sort of insights <laughs> that you follow, <laughs> you know, you can then share them with other folks, but they're going to say, Hey, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding and, and she, she knows what she's talking about, but very hard decisions to make. Uh, I, I admire it and applaud it. Um, before we go, I do want to ask you, because um, you do such a great job at reading, uh, I'm wondering what you're preparing as you launch the tour for the live event. Because since you have studied drama, surely there's a <laughs> different approach with warm bodies in the room and giving you energy back. 
Well, you know, it depend, it, it's going to depend on the length of any given reading, what I bring to the table. Um, you know, so you might hear some of the same things you hear tonight, just in an expanded form mm -hmm. where you can get a much a larger context in terms mm -hmm. of what's going on. Um, but yeah, it, it is very, um, it's, it's always really enjoyable to be able to present to an audience that you can see reacting in that moment mm -hmm. to be able to actually look up and see faces and look in people's eyes so that it feels more like you're speaking to them than just telling a story at them. And that's something I really, really appreciate. And, you know, I just try to be as, as real about it as possible, but yeah, I, I, uh, I can't, I can't help inhabiting them a little bit <laughs> whenever I'm <laughs> reading them to life. <laughs> <laughs> too much fun, too much fun. Mm -hmm. We're excited that you will be part of the Texas author series, which is taking place every second Friday of the month at the Latino bookstore at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. You will be there with Dr. Jesse Esparza on November 10th. And then we'll get to hang out in Austin at the Band Book Reading November 11th at the Texas Book Festival. And you'll also be doing your own panel. You mentioned you had some other readings you wanted to, to let folks know about or a site that they can go and keep up with you. Absolutely. Well, I will tell you first where I'm going to be, and then I'll tell you then where you can find me and find any updates. Um, after I leave Austin, I am headed to Brownsville um, to the brand new Buol Books. Um, that is really exciting that, you know, uh, Brownsville was at without a bookstore for a very long time. And so I'm very excited to be there. That will be on uh, November 14th. Um, and after that, I will be headed to El Paso um, on the 16th. I will be, oh, let me um, clarify at Boa Books. I'll be in conversation with um, author Thomas Ray Garcia. We're not related <laughs> um, in El Paso on the 6th, November 16th. I'll be in conversation with um, Daniel Chacon, um, cool. the, yeah. uh, the author and professor of, of creative writing at Utah. Um, on November 17th, I will be at Bookworks in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in conversation with Evelyn Olmos. Um, and that will be a wrap <laughs> for my my short, intense, but very meaningful um, tour through the Southwest. And uh, to find out more or to get any updates, my, my website is um, amagarciaauthor.com. Fantastic. Well, I wish you continued success. And if folks happen to have missed those readings, we want to remind them they can get signed stock at the Latino bookstore. They should send people that way as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Alma. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Likewise, likewise. <laughs> and uh, I want to give a shout out to our crew. Thank you to our team. Uh, Roxana Guzman is our multi-platform producer. Rodrigo Bravo is our sound engineer and one of the right hands for Nuestra Palabra. I want to thank all the poets, writers, volunteers, and educators who help out throughout the year in different ways. I'm Tony Diaz Liputaficante, and we look forward to seeing you behind the book. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. <laughs> Porque nada de eso te puede elevar, porque nada de eso te...